Hi, friends. Welcome back to the What She Said Project. I'm Shannon Ivey, and today I am joined by none other than Sarah Cooper. Who is Sarah Cooper? Well, let me tell you, I'm going to read this bio. Dr. Sarah Cooper is a Canadian-American scholar and poet. She is the author of two poetry collections, Permanent Marker, uh, published by Paper Nautilus 2020, and... Oh, look, 89% Clemson University Press in 2022. That's where I got to meet her. I'm so lucky. Her poems also appear in Lunch, Sinister Wisdom, Iron Horse, and In Poem a Day. As a professor, she has received the Hallman Award for Teaching and was a 2021 LGBTQ plus Faculty Excellence Award winner, a 2022 Gentry Award winner for Teaching Excellence, and the 2022 T.A. Corinne Fellow at the University of Oregon. Come on. She is currently the Assistant Director of Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies, as well as a professor in the Interdisciplinary Studies Department at Clemson University. You were busy. That's yeah. 2022. Just, you were like, whoosh, whoosh. just a busy year. Yeah. What would you like? That's your professional bio, but what would you like us to know about you today that isn't in that bio? That's a great question. Um, I'm a cat mom. I love cats so much. I love all animals, but I really, I'm, I'm definitely a cat and dog, but mostly cat person. And that's probably like my favorite thing about COVID was getting to be at home all day with a pet, right? So yeah, that's probably the thing. Do your cats enter your creative process at all? Do they affect your creative process? I think he's very distracting. So absolutely, right? Um, not this cat, but a cat I had previously would any, this was back when I wrote more, um, with paper, like I would tear pieces of paper out of my notebook and I would just throw them on the floor and he would roll around with them and he had so much fun with them. And I think, you know, for us, typically when we're writing and we're frustrated, that's a sign of frustration for us, but then he would play with my frustration. And so it was a nice reminder to think about like how the creative process works, but also like how we need more play, right? Like, especially mm -hmm. when we we are trying to be rigorous and routinized in our writing. And that matters too, to a, to an extent. Absolutely. But there's also got to be some play in our frustration or in our, what we think is failure or lack of words or whatever it might be. I love it. And this is a perfect time to tell you that we are doing this interview friends who are listening or watching. I'm doing a year of no's and the year of no's, has been interesting. So whichever way you want to take it, I'm talking to folks who are actively moving their creative lives forward, or it could be like whatever part of your life you're moving forward that could require a little bit of risk or a little bit of resilience. And you just gave us a pro tip, some play. So when you think of a year of no's, what comes up for you? Hmm. That's a great question. I, you have so many good questions, Shannon. I, yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know. I think about a year of no's being maybe like feeling rejection from the outside and maybe how that manifests for how we might feel rejected or abject perhaps in a way in our personal or professional um, lives. I think 
Yeah, I think that's kind of how it is for me. I tend to like be pretty optimistically realistic um, as I'm working through something, whether that's writing or a relationship or whatever it might be, teaching um, until there's just until I start hitting a lot of walls, right? And so when I then those to me would be like no's, right? Like hitting walls and having to recalibrate. And I think that when I get a series of of no's, I don't feel like I've necessarily failed per se. I think it, for me, it's a place that I need to sit and maybe take a harder look at what I'm thinking about or what I'm trying to do and. If I'm trying to put something in the world or do something in the world that's not working, maybe it's not the right time for it, or I'm not the right person to be doing it, or my audience is not the audience that I need to be appealing to necessarily. I think about that a lot with being a creative writer. We're sending poems or essays or short stories or snippets of a novel to literary journals and, you know, when, when we keep getting the no, it's difficult, right? But it's also maybe that that's not the place for my work right now. Or, and and maybe, I mean, how can we ever really know, right? But um, but I think there has to be some kind of, I just, not, not that just I failed, but what sort of agency can I enact right now? And how can I maybe use this not to be like, not as an overcoming narrative, but as a, what what sort of thing can I do? Um, what kind of action could I take or what sort of thinking do I need to do to maybe work in a different way or a medium or with different folk? Mm, I love that. And my, I had this, I don't know if I ever said it to you. I don't, I have this phrase that I get from the Old Testament. I'm not religious, but I was raised very conservatively. So there's a word called beget. Mm-hmm. You know, and it is like a, it's a reproductive word in the way it's used. But for my creative process, it feels like I'm going to do my best to do some smart begetting. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something about having a a theater background where I can show, well, back in the day when I um, was holding myself to some different parameters, I was auditioning for ingenue roles and everyone who's looking at this can laugh and think, well, Shannon, you might have been wasting some of your time, but I didn't know that I would not be cast as Juliet. (laughs) (laughs) I was learning the same monologues everyone else was learning. And so finding a way to be really smart about where you're sending it, taking some reflection when you get a series of no's on a particular project, that's just some good nerdy science. Yeah. 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 It's kind of like laws of attraction or laws of energy, right? Like what, it, what is sticking to me? What am I sticking to? What's yeah. not sticking? Yeah. Yeah. So can you give us some, cause it's so hard to have you here as a published author and not ask some like in your experience questions, <laughs> is there a piece of work that you encountered a lot of like no's or rejections about Could you tell us a story about how that has worked in your creative process before? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I went through my MFA program and finished it and I had a creative thesis at the end of it. And it was not a creative thesis that was really a complete, what I would consider a collection of poems. Like it was kind of more like three chapbook 
like sections of poems, I would say, probably really four, but like maybe three very long ones. And I knew that that was never going to be a collection of poems that I would publish, but I did know that there were some poems in there that were really strong Mm -hmm. and that I could, I believed, and I was told by my mentor and some other folks, like this could be a really good chat book, right? Or this could be a really good section and then build on it. And they were the poems that are in uh, permanent marker, my, my first chat book. And so I kind of, I just pulled those poems out and I printed them off and I just started working them and like reworking them and like putting them in different orders and thinking about them and reading people who had written similar collections of poems about like loss of a sibling um, and that were focused in that way. And so I just kept grinding with them and I kept sending out the the manuscript and it was just an always to book contest and like no luck or it would be a finalist and not get published. And so I was ready to just kind of like give it up with that. I was like, you know, my brother died, you know, however many years ago. And maybe like, this is just, maybe I need to just stop with this so that I can move on to this other manuscript that I was working on, which became 89%. And I was like, you know, I'm just going to send it out one last time. And so I went back through the poems and I read them. And the poem that is now the very first poem in that book, it's called, We Thought About It. It was at the end. And I was like, you know, this poem is so true, like capital T true to me. And also it's, I kind of had buried it in the manuscript and the poem holds a lot of tension about like loving a sibling, but also hating the sibling because of what he's doing as an addict to the family, to himself, to his child. Um, and at the end, there's definitely a dark turn where the speaker like wishes him gone forever. Right. And then the rest of the poems in the collection are about he's dead. And now here's how the speaker is grappling with it. And so I just put it first and it like it won the book contest. And I don't I'm not going to say it's because of that, because like we can't ever know back to mm-hmm. like rejection. Right. But I think something that the rejections should help us do are think about like if I continue to send the same thing out to similar kind of contests, which doesn't necessarily mean you have similar readers, but it could, um, what sort of agency do I have? I have the agency to change the order of these poems, right? And so it worked in that case. Um, It made me think harder about how people read a book, um, but also about, and as someone who has edited literary journals before, I need something to strike me early on right? Like not just be a really beautiful poem or be um, thoughtful. I need it to be provocative. And so I I guess I just kind of like thought about that coming from the other side of trying to get published. And I think, um, I think we kind of all know that, but when you have just a really short manuscript of the chat book link, then like it has to be soon. And so I just decided to try it first and, and it worked. You know, on my on my version of this story, it's resonating with what I was hearing at a recent writers conference about like the make sure the query letter, like the first thing they read of you, it may be your best work and maybe better than the work in the piece that you're sending them. Because yeah. they really for people who read a lot, readers read a lot. And so they tend to just start at the beginning and to like think of the user experience to pull from technology words. I mean, that makes yeah. complete sense. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So in that timeline, people love to know how long things take. So from the 
the conception of like getting the poems together all the way through sending them out and working them and reworking them to that book prize. How mm -hmm. long was that? So I started, I finished my MFA program in 2014, summer of 2014. And that chat book was published in late February, 2020. I found out I had like gotten it accepted and won the book prize in that fall, like August, like, like it's late summer. So August, 2019. So I would say after I finished my MFA, I kind of took a year and just got some individual poems published and kind of like went to AWP and looked at and talked to various places that I might want to send a manuscript. And then probably for, yeah, for almost four years, just like sending it out, rethinking it, reading, like pausing at different points, because obviously all book prizes or, or publishers have different times when they're accepting, you know, submissions. And so I mean, I would say probably for three years and which is, I mean, to, it felt like a really long time and it was, but it, um, but in there too, I was working on other things and also like being a human, you know, like raising my cat and yeah. Having a life, having a life, taking care of a house, whatever, teaching, teaching. Yeah. What, yeah. what is your PhD in? So my PhD is an interdisciplinary degree. It's in rhetorics, communication and information design. Oh. And yeah. And so it is, I finished that just this past May. Amazing. So, yeah. So that first chat book came out the first year of my PhD program. And I had kind of gotten to a place where I was like, maybe I do, do need to just go ahead and get a PhD because I'm not having any luck publishing poems, <laughs> publishing a book of poems. And during my PhD, I published two books of poems. So I don't know. I feel like it's kind of too, sometimes you're like, all right, universe, like you don't want me to have this. And so I'm going to go do this other thing. And the universe is like, oh, you can have it now. <laughs> right. Like, like, oh, okay. just in our timing, not your timing. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, some of my, so I have an MFA, but it's in uh, theater. So I have this conversation with other writers and I come to writing as like something I've always done. So I didn't take it very seriously. Do you know those people? They end up in your classes, I'm sure. Sometimes, sure. Yeah. Sometimes. So how important was your MFA to you as an already talented writer? Was it it, was it a key piece of your success or how would you place it in, in weight and importance? You know, that's a really, so I'll answer that in a couple of ways. I think the, the thing about the MFA for me that was just so helpful was getting exposure to writers in my genre of poetry, but also other genres in when they were doing craft lectures and thinking about things like verbs, you know, in different ways or thinking about structure and page and what, you know, nonfiction writer, creative nonfiction writers can learn from poetry craft lectures. Like that was really helpful for me. Being in a community of writers was amazing. Having fantastic mentors like Denise Duhamel uh, was just that was why I wanted to go to Converse was to work with her because I loved her poems so very much. And so that was good. But the other things that I think we can't really calibrate for or calculate in are like the times when you just happen to have a conversation with a visiting writer that made you rethink a poem or the times where you 
went to AWP that like, I probably would never have gone to AWP if I hadn't been in my MFA program the first time. Um, also I think, you know, in academia, having an MFA allows you to do different things in terms of teaching, right? It, it makes you qualified to do some, some, an array of things. I think it also just opened up some doors. I mean, obviously meeting people, but also thinking about publishing in a different way, which is not to say that if you don't have an MFA, you can't publish, you absolutely can. But I think for me, I needed a little bit more guidance because hmm. my, 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 bachelor's is in English literature. And then my first master's was in literary studies, rhetoric and composition. And so while I took creative writing courses in my BA and in my MA, I had never gotten to dedicate just time to, to doing the MFA and having that dedicated time, like put me in a different trajectory for sure. That's amazing. And so comprehensive at the last writer's conference I was at there was a bunch of UNC Wilmington grads. I don't know why. I was like, because hmm, I've, I've started to meet Converse grads. So that's that's good advice. Mm -hmm. I'm curious what you've got cooking now mm -hmm. and where you are considering um, your growth edge in 2024, because we're about to, it's 2023 now. Mm -hmm. So what you cooking on and what you thinking about for next year? Oh, 2024. So right now I'm in a position where I am applying for jobs kind of all over. I, um, I'm on the market is what we call mm -hmm. it. Um, to, that. <laughs> yeah, I'm on the market. Um, so I'm on the market because I very much like want to, have a different position. I've been at Clemson for a while now and it's been great, but I also would like to do be somewhere else. Uh, my partner lives in Denver, Colorado. And so I'm kind of targeting that area, obviously, and looking for jobs um, because I we would very much like to live in the same time zone at some point in our relationship. That seems like a, yes. a good thing. Yeah. It seems like well, a small thing, but a good thing. Yeah. yeah. So that's something that, um, like that's kind of where I'm trying to manifest a lot of good energy, um, in terms of creative work, I am using my dissertation, um, which was on lesbian only spaces that existed historically in the United States, as well as some of them still do exist today, um, but it looked at these different spaces and considered how different groups operationalized their political ideologies, like largely within like separatist politics. And so I'm using that research as a backdrop for this next creative endeavor, we'll call it. I'm not sure what it's going to look like. But I mean, I'm thinking poems, but obviously that's always a, a shifting um, medium. And so I'm using my archival work from that project to look at how um how we can kind of to use heather love's concept like feel backward mm -hmm. and grapple with some of these identities some of them haunting i would say some of them highly problematic some of them very radical um some of them some of the, some of the ideologies might still be considered radical today but also kind of like playing with Elizabeth Freeman's notion of um, 
like interrogating what queer really is. And she makes this argument that I'm very drawn to that queerness cannot be what is ahead. Like we think about queerness as like a resistance to normativity or a um, imagination that is liberating and radical by resisting that normativity, right? But what Freeman says is how can we ever know what queer is if it's always like ahead of us? Hmm. And she thinks that, and she suggests like maybe if, what we are really needing to do is kind of look back and see how we might understand queerness in historical moments with historical constraints. And so I'm kind of using those two scholars ideas about history and queerness and politics to you to work with these archival documents and do some crafting of creative work. So things like using some blackout work, some erasure work, maybe some found poems um, yeah, that's kind of where I am with, uh, creative stuff right now. That's, that's very cool. Uh, I'm excited to see where y'all land, of course. So can I read something back to you from your book? Sure. So I was, I love to do these things, uh, where I like, I love a little bit of tarot cards. And so I, today I used your book as like a, let's see. Before I read her words, would you tell us um, a little bit about your mother and how she came to be a part of your creative process? Sure. So my mom was um, a self-taught poet, and I didn't know that until probably a few years before she died. I found a lot of her poems she'd handwritten in a filing cabinet in my parents' home. And I was like, what are these? And she was like, oh yeah, I used to write poems. And it was kind of like, what? Because she had seen me like go through school and take creative writing and love creative writing and, um, you know, get my MFA. And I was like, I can't believe you never told me this. And she was like, I didn't want to influence you. And I think that that's one of the very ways that she was as a parent and as a friend, like watching her with her friends is she had a deep love and investment, but didn't want to push anything. And I really appreciated it then and appreciate it even more now, because when I, when someone tells me something about her that I didn't know, I'm like, of course, like, how could I have known that? Right. So she very much didn't want to get in the way, but very much wanted to witness. And I think that for me is a beautiful way of being um, in relationship with another person. Right. And like showing solidarity and love and trust. And so the book, the 89% book is about her in some ways and about me in a lot of ways. And so the book narrates our lives. Uh, she was diagnosed with cancer at the, at the very end of um, my MFA time. So I just graduated and a few months later, she was diagnosed with cancer and she lived with stage four colon cancer for almost five years. And so I um, titled the book 89% because when she was diagnosed in 2014, the survival rate for, and survival rate is if you live past five years for someone with stage four colon cancer was 11%. And so because she didn't live to that five-year point, she was of the 89% in that statistic. So the book in various ways talks back to that, like that medical model of identity um, the cover of it was designed by a, 
person who also has an MFA, um, but her MFA is in um, medical drawing, medical illustration, which is a very rare degree. And mm -hmm. she, I found my partner is a physician. And so I was like, I really want this cover to be striking and I want it to look medical, but human. And so she kind of helped me like find this person who was very excited to work on the project and did a, a beautiful rendering of a body like in motion, but we see their entire gastrointestinal tract. We see the ribs, we see um, the femur inserting into the pelvis. So all these things, right? Like that, that was important to me. So that was like the cover, the cover, I wanted it to be something that was human, but something that was also very um, abstracted, I guess, a bit. And one of my initial ideas was to use a scan of my mom's, one of her PET scans or something like that. And then I didn't really feel comfortable with it because I felt like that I felt like that was invasive. Um, and so I, you know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to do something like that. And also she was no longer living and I couldn't ask for permission. And I think that was something that was really important to me. So having someone do a drawing, like, like the cover was great. It was a good balance, I think, for the poems. You know, until you go through something medical, you really don't know where all these things are or how important they are uh, when they're gone. So that was such an interesting day for me to find you. And it's like, oh, as a colorectal cancer survivor, here I am with this poet who's come to our town to read. And, and I'm so glad you did. And I'm so glad I was there. So did I ever tell you the funny, the funny quote about colorectal cancer people that my friend Okay. So there's a thing called Camp Kesem and Camp Kesem is for parents and caregivers of who have colorectal oh, any cancer in their history and it's a camp for kids and it's free and it's national. It's wonderful. Okay. So my first year taking my child to this camp, I met a woman whose husband uh was still alive at the time but uh he was liver cancer she told me. And she had lots of life, very funny woman and she was like, "I'm going to guess." what kind of cancer you had. And I'm like, okay. And so she was like, let me talk to you a little bit more. So we talked a little bit more and she was like, I got it. It's colorectal. And I was like, how did you know that? She was like, well, I've learned that if I ever want to ask the person I just met, who's a cancer survivor to go have a drink with me and some food, and maybe they would be like the most fun friend ever. It's got to be colorectal cancer. So when I flipped through the <laughs> book, I got to the page of shots and other things she taught me. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to send this to my friend who, because <laughs> that is, uh-huh. Yes. Mm -hmm. But what I love in this book is that you have her words. And so I'm going to read her words back to you. Okay. I think it is relevant for what we're talking about today. You have so much to offer, but don't show all your cards at once. The rules of dating and gambling are interchangeable. Mm -hmm. I love several times in this book, there's a sort of um, burlesque or coquette sort of like show or don't show pass or don't pass. Do you know, I just, there's a theme that runs through it. Mm -hmm. So my last question for you is in that same vein, when you're a creative person living forward, putting work out there that's forward, how do you balance it with also a need for privacy mm. or a need for a healthy boundaries, but put that capital T truth work out there? 
what would you suggest for those listening in? Mm, yeah, I think, I think we, I think that's kind of an individuated thing and in that we have to decide like what we are comfortable with, right. And what we can live with and what we're willing, um, to potentially expose of other people, you know, I think we all negotiate that in different ways all the time. Like if I tell a story about me, it's never just my story, right. Unless it's like, I stubbed my toe. Right. Um, I'm not like outing the door in any way, but I think about as a queer person, you know, to tell my story at different points in my life meant outing someone else who maybe wasn't prepared to be out. And that's, um, yeah, I think it's individuated, but I, I do know that there are ways that we can, as creative writers, play in that space by using voice, using uncertainty, using persona, those kinds of things, um, calling it fiction, right? Like all this kind of stuff. And, and also as poets being like, oh, I'm definitely not the speaker of that. Like there are ways that we can manage comfort and, and use creative process, I think. But yeah, for queer people, I think we've been doing that our whole lives. And and sometimes if we really reflect back on that, we find some pretty interesting avenues to to manage our lives, but also like take care of other people in that process. That is lovely and brilliant. Dr. Sarah Cooper, thank you so much for coming on the What She Said Project podcast and sharing with us. I'm going to enjoy this book for years to come. I have like one really strange question to ask you. Mm -hmm. Have you, and you can tell me now, have you ever had someone say, can I use this poem in my work? Have you ever had someone say, like at the top of a chapter or something? I'm curious if people have ever asked you that before. I have not had someone ask me that, but I would probably say yes. You know, if, if I'm having that conversation with someone, we're clearly thinking in creative energy. So yeah, I'd be good with that. Uh, okay. One more last question. Now I'm just being selfish with your time. <laughs> You're fine. So creative nonfiction people, mm-hmm. medical creative nonfiction. Um, when you think of that sort of, you know, there's a lot coming out like books, like hysterical, even like the book, uh, care work. So this sort of feminist body-based medical memoir, mm-hmm. uh, do you feel like it is, it is something that you need, um, a journalism degree for, or creative nonfiction can be its own thing with your creative writing background? Thoughts about that? Yeah. So do you mean like, can creative nonfiction writers write medical stuff? Is that what you're asking? Right. Yeah. Oh, I think, I mean, I guess it would depend on their background, right? Like their medical knowledge. Um, I think something about like, and this is like, regardless of genre, but I mean, maybe more applicable to creative nonfiction. I love it when a piece of writing teaches me something, you know, like when I'm like, oh, I had no idea that the lungs could do all of that. Right. Or I had no idea that, you know, you could whatever, like that you had however many yards of veins, right. Like in your body, like that's fascinating. And I think a good piece of writing teaches us without telling us something. Hmm. And so I think as creative writers, like some of the most important work we do are, are learning those things and then finding ways to weave that into our work 
mm-hmm. so that we are using it in a creative way and a thoughtful way and an imaginative way, if that makes sense. Like I had, um, I had my spouse read over appointment. I was like, does this make sense? Like physiologically? And she's like, oh yeah, that makes total sense. Except I would like reverse this order on something. And I was like, oh, okay. Like that's actually really helpful because I wouldn't have known that. Right. Um, but as a physician, she knew that. And so it was, I think it's helpful to have some different eyes on our work, like creative eyes, but also just knowledge eyes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's bad. So, okay. Two last questions. I keep saying last questions, but these are the last two questions for fun. What do you, do you read for fun? Yeah, I read, I do read for fun. Um, I read a little bit of everything. I like, I love finding a book of poems and like in reading it, like if it's, I end up at a reading somewhere and I'll buy the poems or if someone says, oh, have you read this person's new collection and, you know, getting those kinds of unsolicited um, advice. That's great. Unsolicited advice to buy. Um, I also love reading nonfiction. I love reading essays. I think the kind of creative energy in essays makes me think hard too about what I'm doing in, in my poetry Right now, I am reading the Empathy Exams, which is um, a collection of essays from Leslie Jameson. And so that's something I'm kind of digging into. And also, I am reading a lot of archival theory and a lot of archival uh, queer archival work just for some um, scholarly journals I'm working on right now. So, yeah. What? This is the last of the two questions. For your spouse who is a physician mm-hmm. do they read for fun too yeah they do read for fun they are reading um elliot page's memoir right now and they they often they don't read as much probably as i do because they wind down in different ways um but yeah so do read more reading on vacation on the kindle right when you can just maybe sit by a pool and like mm-hmm. not be expected to pick up your phone all the time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that she reads, but yeah, sporadic reading enjoys reading when reading is something that makes sense. Yeah. Sure. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I might have questions to follow up with you, but the readers and listeners of the podcast may want to follow you. Is there a place where folks can like follow and find out how to get your books? Absolutely. You can find me on Instagram. Uh, you can, I have a website, sarahcooperpoet.com. I, you can reach me on there. Uh, you can buy the books on my website as well. Yeah. Cool. I'll you. put the links in. Yes, of course. Thank you so much for being my second Year of Nose podcast guest. Thanks for having me. And two's my lucky number. So that feels really good. Perfect. <laughs> All right, dear one. I'm going to stop recording so I can say goodbye to you for reals for reals. Thanks, everybody. Come back next week for the third installation of the Year of Nose podcast.